Welcome to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast with your host, Jim Robinson. Hello, and welcome back to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Robinson. So in today's episode, we've been uh, doing a lot uh, of looking at fields during the month of September, and we'll continue to do so into October. And the reason we're doing so is because we're looking at a lot of brand new products to bring forward into our portfolio, as are a number of other seed companies doing late season evaluations of pre-commercial trials and finding better hybrids to bring into their portfolios as we look to improve and gain on the genetic performance that we've seen in years past. So today what we'll do is we'll actually talk about a little bit of what we look for for new advancements from the perspectives of a corn breeder. What does the development process look like? What are, the, what are the objectives that the breeders have in developing new inbreds and hybrids? And what should farmers get excited about regarding the implementation of new technologies into corn breeding? So with me today to talk about this, we have Ben Ford. So Ben, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Jim. So my interest in corn breeding started in the summers of 90, 1996 through 1998, working with J.C. Robinson Seeds as an intern I really came into that experience with an interest in science and an interest in agriculture, but no clear way to clear understanding of how to put those two together. And so that really crystallized it for me that this was the, the path I wanted to set out on. And so following that, I went off to graduate school and was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to come back to work for J.C. Robinson Seeds uh, in Nebraska as a corn breeder starting in 2001. And so I've worked as a corn breeder now for about the last 20 years and more recently have taken over leadership of the North America corn breeding team for Syngenta. Excellent. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit about the timeline for the development of a new hybrid? Yeah. And to do that, I'll split that into two key steps because as a breeder in a hybrid crop, I really have to think first about developing new parental lines uh, before I can really get into thinking about hybrids. And so the first step there with creating the new parental line is about a four-year process. There's different ways to potentially speed that up with some key projects or some reasons why with some projects we may slow that down a little bit. But uh, with the use of global double taploid labs, uh, multiple seasons per year by utilizing other growing environments other than just the summer here uh, in the Midwest, we can move, move that in about a three to four-year process. And so we really are thinking about uh, developing lines that are going to be successful seed parents uh, in our production, be reliable seed parents as we uh, seek to be reliable suppliers of hybrid seed corn. Uh, and there's a number of traits that are important just for inbreds in that space, a number of tassel traits, for example, and other seed quality traits that really come into play for us when we think about producibility. Uh, but the piece that's always in the back of our mind, even in that step, is the idea that this is a hybrid crop and developing a great inbred does nothing for us if it doesn't create great hybrids. And so we really do look to uh, start that evaluation process early in terms of beginning to make a few hybrid combinations with that new parental line and getting those out in the field. The other note that I'll make is that during my career, that process has changed pretty dramatically because in, when I first started, we really knew nothing uh, about the hybrid potential of a new parent line until we actually had made a hybrid and put it in the field. And so the big change for me really has been in the last uh, 20 years, the advent of uh, prediction, uh, specifically as a result of genotyping those lines, understanding the genetic profile, and actually being able to make a lot of selections uh, and move forward only with lines that have potential uh, into that field evaluation. 
Yeah, so that, that's a, a great point to add that, I mean, it, things have changed so drastically in the last number of years, not just from the timeline of development of the new parental lines, but then also uh, you know, the amount of resources it takes or, or types of resources it takes to uh, create a new hybrid out of those. You can do a lot of prediction using data modeling based on genotypes and that sort of thing. Has that sped up the process of testing new hybrids from these parental lines at all, or, or is it still the normal several years of selection um, and narrowing down those parental lines into those ones that you consider key elite lines? Yeah, there certainly are opportunities with that technology to accelerate the speed. Uh, but I would say that the bigger change really has been in, in just the, the overall numbers game. We can, in, instead of screening maybe 100,000 different potential new parental lines, we can really screen millions of lines with genetic markers and still maintain a similar level of, of field resources needed to actually carry out uh, those steps once we actually get to that process. Yeah, so that, I guess what that that generally does for us then is is it really ramps up the amount of genetic gain that's potential between each generation of, of inbred and hybrid development. Uh, would that be correct assumption? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so uh, not just for yield, where uh, we continue the march forward in improving gen- genetic gain for yield every year, but really in attacking some of those other key traits that really represent risk for our growers. Uh, Areas like disease tolerance, uh, yield stability, uh, drought drought stress tolerance, and a number of other traits that uh, typically have been much harder to screen for on a consistent basis in the field. Yeah, so that's actually, you, you preempted my next question on, on what are those things that you're looking for as you're developing new new hybrids and then more specifically new inbreds as well. Is the you know, can you easily predict some of those things uh, or do you have to actually get that environment to test it? You bet. And and so we really bring in the concept of heritability of a trait. And so yield, for example, the, the heritability for yield is fairly low. Uh, it's harder to, harder to predict, especially when we really think about what yield means. It's really not just yield potential, but also will it yield, where, where will it yield, exactly how will it yield uh, when it comes across a number of different environmental uh, situations, if you will, year over year. And so obviously we think about yield, what topped the plot this year, but we're much more interested in some of those other things that better predict how it's going to perform in future years, other than the one we've just observed it in. And so uh, understanding drought stress tolerance, as I, as I noted, and especially things around standability, uh, things like stock diseases come into play a great deal. Uh, and then we get into area of adaptation. And so just because a product yields in one place. Uh, the first question is, will it yield in that same place again next year? Uh, but then it really gets into where else will it move? And uh, we start thinking about both the ge- geography and the environment, things like heat and rainfall and soils, but also management practices that re- are representative of different areas. Mm-hmm. Aspects like corn on corn uh, use or rotation, plant populations and a number of other things. Absolutely. Now, you know, th- those are a lot of really high level aspects to be looking at in, in given hybrids. But, you know, every breeder has his own flavor of, of how he does selections or how she does selections. Uh, what are you personally looking for? You know, what is your preference as you are uh, working on your individual proje- uh, projects? Yeah, especially when I'm still thinking about these as parent lines and not yet focused as much on hybrids. Uh, a big drive for me has been general combining ability, really understanding how that line is going to perform in a number of different hybrid combinations and what that line brings to every hybrid that it creates. 
And so that that's a big one for me. I'm also looking for step change type of traits. Is there something this line does that's so much better than other lines that it's even if it's only for one trait, it really represents a step forward for us uh, as a breeder and a, for our genetic pipeline. So those are those are big ones. Uh, when I really get into the hybrid piece and looking at specific hybrids, it really comes down to the stable part uh, in stable yield across environments. Uh, how are we going to not only win a plot once, but uh, really create a hybrid that's going going to represent a good stable product across years for growers? Yeah. You know, you've mentioned that a couple of times now that, that stability of a product is is actually been a major focus within uh, uh, breeding for the last number of years, and then that's probably actually been the major contributor to our increasing yields. You know, in the last twenty plus years, you know, we've we've always heard even the '90s about three hundred bushel corn that hits here and there. Now we're seeing that more consistently, but we're also getting a much more uh, stable set of products coming through each year. What do you think? That, that growers should be excited about from technologies that have emerged in the uh, breeding realm in the last 20 years and may emerge in the next 20 years? Uh, uh, what should they get excited about in that realm? Yeah, we really start thinking about the whole plant and how we're trying to protect the entire plant against risk. And so sometimes that means bringing in GM traits to protect our roots, which you might think of as a rootworm protection program but ultimately really is gonna matter when we get into drought stress years, for example. Anything we can do to improve the health of our roots just helps everything else uh, come through in those years where we get more extreme environments. And so it's just one example uh, of a trait where uh, we'll bring essentially any technology that, that, we can, that we can bring to solve problems kind of one at a time as we think about the plant all the way from under the ground to the, to the uh, in a sense, the tassel and its ability to, to produce enough pollen in, in stress years as well. Absolutely. And then technologies that, that we might see, I mean, you, you touched on uh, dihaploids, you touched on using multiple cycles within a given year and uh, molecular markers and sequencing. Uh, what else might we see coming forward in, in those spaces? I mean, data science has become so huge and it's already been a huge deal in, uh, in breeding. Will that continue to improve and evolve? Yeah, predicting future outcomes certainly is one of the major spaces. Uh, exactly to your point, our ability to both generate and uh, deal with or or analyze huge data sets that represent multi-year data and a lot of environmental inputs really make us uh, much more capable of predicting future outcomes or predicting outcomes, you know, over a 10-year time frame. We don't necessarily know what next year is going to look like, but if we have some sense of the environmental tendencies in an area, we really can get down to field level and farm level uh, predictive analytics that help help us really understand both which hybrids to advance for that uh, target environment, but also, you know, which hybrids should fit in a portfolio for our growers as well. The other space I would really say as a breeder that will be a potential game changer is in the gene editing space. And so when we think about our history and plant breeding we really think about um, using things like recombination or crossing new lines together, or in, in many cases, random mutation to uh, essentially randomly create new variation. And then we put that variation out in the field and select the best stuff that comes out of that. Gene editing really brings with it the promise of being able to create targeted variation, very intentional changes uh, with a known outcome in mind and starting to make very specific changes that are 
that are targeted in, at improving individual traits. Can you give any examples of those? Are, are there any things that, that are tangible to uh, growers that, that might be of interest? Yeah, the, the list of traits really are endless. Obviously, the easier ones are going to be simply inherited traits. And you can think of a few in corn that might be, you know, simple inherited traits. Some of the disease traits, for example, uh, certain uh, kernel characteristics like color characteristics or starch characteristics mm -hmm. can come into play that are kind of easier targets. Um, naturally, uh, in corn, we think about all the, the list of really important traits for us, and we know that they're most of them are controlled by a large number of genes. And so we're not in a sense, uh, just going after those easy targets mm -hmm. as we, as we really create technologies. And so you've, many people have heard of CRISPR Cas9. I think you're going to hear of a lot of these different, uh, gene editing spaces, not just in crop production, but as in medicine as well, and a number of other spaces with human health. But, uh, for us, the, the other opportunity there is to really think about doing it more than one gene at a time so that we can go after these, uh, more more complicated traits, and uh, I feel fortunate to work in in Syngenta, where we've got uh, intellectual property and uh, technology developed in the area of being able to apply this at scale uh, and linking it with a doubled haploid process to to really target large numbers of genes at a time for a key trait. Uh, that will be really exciting to see those come to be, assuming there aren't any regulatory hurdles that that come in those two. <laughs> I'll let you figure that part out. Yeah, <laughs> so. You know, I've often heard that, that breeding is, is a combination of science, uh, it's a numbers and probability game, and then also there's an art to it too. How do you view the interplay of those different factors in the success or failure of a program? Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent question. So uh, the art play really comes into knowing um, what to shoot for, um, really understanding what the true success factors are for growers and how that plant will essentially respond to, to meet that, what, what, what's required in that plant to meet that. But we're definitely going down the road of, of being able to apply more and more data science uh, to not necessarily replace the art of breeding, but to enhance it, uh, to, to build on that. And so uh, this, this aspect of, of data really is, is a game changer for us when we think about the next 20 years of breeding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, we've gone from uh, individual data points, you know, of, of 15, 16 yield locations to using molecular markers and everything that can provide billions of data points. And in fact, I think you're probably operating in the sta scale of near trillions of, of data points every year. Uh, that's going to uh, uh, make it a lot of fun and make all the other steps just as important. Yeah. In fact, when I started, often when I would make the first advancement decision for a hybrid uh you know, in my first year yield trials, I might have something on the order of like 10 data points for that hybrid to make a decision. Now we really literally have thousands of data points on that specific hybrid when I start factoring in the, the genetic marker data, and I have a lot more information to work with. And so it really gets down to uh, being able to do that at scale. And it doesn't completely remove the, the luck component from breeding. Uh, there's, there's still an aspect where uh, we have to plan it out there and understand how it's going to perform, but essentially what we're doing is stacking, stacking the deck, if you will, in a card analogy, we're coming in with a, uh, a much better probability of success. Absolutely. You know, a, a successful breeder once told me that, that a farmer puts a lot of faith in our ability to deliver improved products. Our responsibility in the seed industry is to deliver those improvements along with the insights where he can best realize those gains. And I think all those data points really help to cement our ability to 
provide them those insights to to best realize those gains. And so, you know, overall with the the amount of data that you're working with, you know, being on the the orders of magnitude larger than it was 20 years ago, as well as those specific things you're looking at to make improvements on both the inbreds as well as the hybrids, you know, whether it's area of adaptation, stability of the product, its ability to handle both biotic being diseases and abiotic stressors. You know, there, there is a lot to look forward to in the breeding space. Is there anything else you want to add, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. That was a great summary. I would just add that uh, with all of this data and all of the potential uh, trails we can go down, if you will, with, with all this different type of environmental and genetic data, the important thing really comes back to a focus on understanding what growers are facing and understanding the problems we're trying to solve. Uh, if we have that locked in, then, then certainly the power of these tools uh, really becomes evident for us. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ben. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So, as always, be sure to tune in on the 1st and the 15th of every month for new episodes. And until then, stay field ready. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. Join us next time to be field ready. A Parkville Media Production.